0: the most important question a person can ask was asked by job many centuries ago And he asked this question how can a man be right before God how can a person be right with God I'm not sure how many people are excited about that question or care much about that question in our society it's kinda of like um, I don't know change the channel um, what's what's on TV? What's for dinner? Did you see that video on YouTube? When's the next March Madness game? The reason that question is so important is because the answer is massively important. And in chapter three, uh, what we saw last week, Paul drew the unhappy conclusion of what he had been saying ever since chapter 1, verse 18. So for nearly three chapters, he's been talking about our need for the gospel, our need for the Savior, Jesus. And what he concluded is that all people, all Jews, all Gentiles are under sin. And he concluded that there is none righteous, not even one, not even your grandmother. Sorry. She may be more righteous than you, but... And therefore, he concludes in verse 20 of chapter 3, For by the works of the law, or by good works, no human being will be justified or counted righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what we're going to see here is the heart of the gospel. In Romans 3, verses 21 to 26, the reformer Martin Luther said this is the heart of the whole Bible. Don't miss this message. So look with me in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, and and we'll also be looking at uh, verses 27 to 31 shortly after that as well. Uh, Pray with me. Father, may your word work, do its work in our hearts. Grant me clarity of thought and speech. May your Holy Spirit richly, Apply your truth to our lives. And may we see the glory of Christ and how great he is. In his name we pray. Amen. So stand for the reading of God's word, please. This is Romans three twenty-one to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These are the words of the living God. You may be seated. So in this passage, starting with verse 21, in this passage, Paul talks about both the Saving righteousness of God and God's righteous character and judgment. He is and has both of those things. Here in verses 21 and 22, the righteousness of God means the saving righteousness of God. It is the way that God justifies, it is the way that God makes people right with Him. So these very important words, but now, but now, in verse 21. Because no one can be justified by good works or the works of the law. But now, God has provided a way for people to be right with him, apart from the law. Apart from God's revelation of his will. Both apart from the works of the law and apart from the law as the old covenant. But now, God has intervened to inaugurate a new era in salvation history. God accomplished what was needed to carry out his saving righteousness. So God has pulled it off. Even though God's saving righteousness has been manifested apart from the law as a system, yet the law and the prophets, and so that's a buzzword, or that's a phrase that means the whole Old Testament, so the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets, bear witness to it. So we're not justified by the law, but the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bears witness to God's saving righteousness. It's not God's plan B due to the failure of the old plan, God always intended the law as a temporary covenant to be fulfilled in the new covenant. He has brought to fulfillment what the Old Testament was pointing to all along. So in verse 22, you see, it is the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is God's saving righteousness that he gives to us through faith. And it is not for the Jew only, nor for the Gentile only. It's not just for the religious or the irreligious. It's not for people of a particular culture or race or upbringing. It's not for the good old days when people were more ignorant and now we're more enlightened so we don't need it anymore. The saving righteousness of God is for all. By faith in Jesus, it's for all who believe. Because there is no distinction. In what way is there no distinction? Well, he tells us in verse 23, There is no distinction in the need for God's saving righteousness by faith in Christ among all people because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have you noticed that's true? In verse um, 21 of chapter 1, Paul said that the root expression of human sin is not honoring or giving glory to God. God designed us to reflect his glory, that is, his perfection and his excellence and his goodness and his beauty. But all of us keep falling short of his glory. That's the sense and the tense of this this phrase. We keep falling short of his glory. Even Christians keep falling short of his glory. So I wonder if this is a typical end-of-the-day conversation for you. How was your day? Oh, it was okay, but I fell short of God's glory again. Yeah, me too. Maybe we'll do better tomorrow. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, that's, that's what we do or what we don't do. We fall short of God's glory, always. Verse 23 of chapter 3 is the one verse, version of chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. It's what he's been saying for three chapters, and he condenses it all in this one verse. We need to believe that we really are that bad, in order to truly want God's saving provision for us. Thankfully, we're not all as bad as we can be. Well, hopefully most of us are not as bad as we can be. But we're bad. We need a Savior. If I'm okay, you're okay. We just need a little help. But the world's way is to redefine, minimize, excuse, ridicule, or ignore sin. God's solution is not to minimize our sin so that he can accept us easier. Hey, don't worry about it. Just don't, don't call attention to it and it'll, it'll be okay. Just don't let me know and I'll, 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 I'll accept you. It's not how it works. Here is God's solution in verse 24. You're justified. God justifies us. That is, he counts us righteous by his grace as a gift. He gives to us a right standing before him. He declares us righteous. He just gives us a gift of righteousness. Now you might say, well, that's very God of, good of God to do that, but um, I wonder if he's wise in doing that. Can he, can he really just declare us righteous when we're really not? I mean, yesterday I kicked the cat and yelled at a guy for cutting me off on the freeway and stuck my tongue out at my wife. And I think God knows that. So is God good with making up something about me that isn't true? Not that I don't appreciate it, but what if he realizes it was a bad idea to count me righteous when I'm not and changes his mind and takes away this gift? In fact, some critics of this uh, teaching would say this is legal fiction. God, to count us righteous when we're really not is legal fiction. Is that what God does? Let's press on in this text to see what Paul describes the way God counts us righteous. Paul says, God justifies us by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption means the act of freeing or the state of being freed from bondage such as that of a prisoner or a slave by payment of a ransom. So the basis by which God justifies us by his grace as a gift was not just the bare act of his will. It is through the redemption or ransom price that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul explains that further and God's justifying work for us in Christ in verse 25. Verse 25 tells us that the way God accomplished redemption for us in Christ is he put him forward, kind of a different, unique word, it's kind of hard to translate, set him forth or presented him as a propitiation by his blood. The meaning of the word propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away wrath and provides forgiveness. In other words, God set forth Christ as the atoning sacrifice that satisfies or appeases His wrath for our forgiveness. Now, some object to this. They object to this meaning of propitiation because they see it as picturing God as this angry, savage, like a pagan God that demands um, a a bribe, payment. Mean-spirited, out of control, capricious God who must be placated or bribed. Many who object to this meaning for propitiation reject the idea that God has wrath at all. Imagine if we had no anger at sin. If we, it was no big deal for child trafficking or crime, we didn't care. That would be dehumanizing. To, to, to say God can't have wrath is like the de of God. What kind of God would he be if he didn't hate sin and evil and have a reaction to it? Paul began his teaching about why we need the gospel in chapter 1 by saying that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is his holy and righteous opposition to human sin. It is not like volatile, unpredictable, selfish, and sinful human anger. And the picture of the sacrifice to turn away God's wrath is not that of Jesus pleading with his unwilling Father not to execute his angry judgment against people. It was their purpose and plan all along, the purpose of the Father and the Son all along. God gave pictures to his people of sacrifices and priests and temples and tabernacles. And and Isaiah 53, 700 years before Christ was born, uh, talked about how he would bear the sins of, of, of the people and justify many people because of it. So it's been, for centuries, God has been leading up to this plan of the death of his son, for the sins of his people. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word for propitiation was used for the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the top cover of the uh, of the Ark of the Covenant, and it was where on the Day of Atonement the high priest went in and sprinkled the blood of the, of the sacrifice for the sins of people for the whole year. This was an annual picture of the ultimate propitiation or atoning sacrifice for the sins of God's people. In other words, God set forth or presented Christ as an atoning sacrifice by his blood, meaning his death, to be received by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ as the one whose death paid the redemption price for my sins. Faith in Christ is the only way to receive the benefit of the redemption that is in Christ. It doesn't come to us automatically. It's not going to show up in your mailbox. It doesn't automatically default to us, or much less can we work for it. It's by faith in Christ alone that it comes to us. But for what purpose did God put forward or publicly display Christ as a propitiation in his blood? It was to show or to demonstrate His righteousness. Why did God need to show His righteousness? Because in His divine forbearance, in God's long-suffering and patience, God passed over former sins. God intentionally overlooked the sins of all people before the death of Christ. He didn't bring the full punishment against them that their sins deserved. And so how could... A God who is so holy and just leaves so many centuries of sin unpunished. Because all along he planned to visit his judgment against their, their sins upon Christ. Paul preached in Athens in Acts 17. He said, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. The times of being ignorant about sin, ignorant about the way it's forgiven, ignorant about the ways that you make up to atone for sin. All the ignorance about sin and how it's forgiven, how it's dealt with, is that those times are done. God has set forth Christ and called everywhere, all people everywhere to, to put their faith in him. So all who hoped in God's unfolding promise and what the law foreshadowed, so all the Old Testament foreshadowings, through the seed of the woman, the promise to Abraham, the covenant with Moses, to David, and the prophets, ultimately would have their sins atoned for in Christ. In other words, the redemption in Christ through his death on the cross was retroactive for those who trusted in in God's promise of the coming Messiah. Paul further explains in verse 26 God's purpose in putting Christ forward as a sacrifice for sin. He said it was, again, using the same verbiage, it was to show his righteousness at the present time at this age of fulfillment of God's plan of redemption in Christ. Now is the time for God's righteousness, meaning his just character and righteous judgment to be displayed in his judging of sin in Christ. The reason God put forward Christ as a sacrifice for sin to show his righteousness was so that he might be just. God, in order to be just, had to truly punish sin. He couldn't say, I hate sin, sin's death, and then let us off the hook. In order to be just, he really had to punish sin. And by punishing sins in Christ, we don't have to receive the punishment. If Jesus just died the death of a martyr, as an example of a man who stood for truth and justice against religious hypocrisy and a corrupt government, that's commendable. But it doesn't vindicate God for not fully punishing sin. Only if God has actually judged our sins in Christ's death is God actually just and not punishing us. So if you owe a million dollars to me, I wish one of you would, but to my knowledge you don't. And a kind-hearted person like Roy decides to pay it off for you, then you don't owe the debt anymore. And on top of that, Roy gives you access to his bank account. And he gives you free access to his riches. He's that kind of guy. Roy's like Jesus. So this, this is how Paul connects God being just with being the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now God can justly justify you. God can righteously count you right in his sight. He can mercifully save us without compromising his justice because God's saving righteousness and judging righteousness met in the death of Jesus on the cross. And you can only receive that by faith. This is the heart of the gospel. Anything else is not the gospel. Oh, we have a great God. We have an awesome Savior. He is so good to not hold our sins against us. He is. So, we don't get how sinful we are. Like, you, your kids don't get how bad they are. And yet you graciously deal with them? Well, you do your best. But God is so good. He is so good. He's given us a, a, a mighty Savior. And He mighty, mightily saves us, richly saves us so deeply, digs us out of the pit that we were in. So praise his great name. He's so good. In verses 27 to 31, Paul draws some conclusions. I'll read that section. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. So, what can anyone boast in that would make him right with God again, Paul spent three chapters saying, "There's nobody righteous; you can't earn your salvation. no human human being will be justified made right in God's sight by the works of the law, and he has just taught that the only way a person may be justified is by God's grace as a gift by faith in Christ, whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice for our redemption. So, what can anyone boast in that makes him right? Or makes her right with God. How about your morality? Church attendance? Being a good employee? Being on time for church? You now that will do it. Your lack of wealth? Your wealth? Being a good husband or a wife or a parent? Being a good kid from a great family, your great athlete, how much you've suffered, your compassion, your stunning good looks. Being hip and cool, your intelligence, the cause you serve or fight for, Paul says that in being right with God, boasting in anything is excluded. There's nothing that commends you to God apart from Christ. Then Paul asks, by what kind of law is boasting excluded? By a law, or in other words, a principle of works, or no, on the contrary, by a law or a principle of faith? What does Paul mean? He tells us in verse 28 what he means. We are justified by faith apart from works of law. It can't be more plain than that. We are counted righteous in God's sight by faith apart from any good works that we do. Faith is a receiving act. It is a heart posture that recognizes, I need a righteousness that comes from outside of me that can only be found in Jesus. It is surrendering whatever else you trust in to make you right with God. Faith is the hand of a beggar reaching out to receive the gift of a King. Faith is the hand of a beggar reaching out to receive the gift of a king. Or Paul says, here's another proof that justification is by faith. God is not the God of the Jews only. He is the God of the Gentiles too. In other words, the Jews knew that there is only one God. There is Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, Here, Israel, the Lord our God is one. So there's one God who is Lord over all people. Then surely you must see that But one God will justify both Jew and Gentile by faith. Gentiles do not need to become Jews to be justified. The law was never for the Jews' justification, but for the identification of being God's people. And the law in its old covenant form was, was to be fulfilled in Christ. Since there is one God, and since all are not righteous in His sight, there is only one way to be right with Him, by faith in the one He presented as the sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ. As Paul will say in Romans 8:33, "It is God who justifies. Fallen people are not capable, nor are they qualified to produce their, their own ways of justification. God isn't sending around a, uh, an advice form. "Hey, what do you think about ways of justification?" He's presented that only in Christ. And he says in the final verse in verse 31, "Do we then overthrow the law by this faith?" with Paul's clear and emphatic teaching that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law, he asks, do we overthrow the law by this faith? Do we set aside the law? Do we abolish it? Do we nullify it? Is the law now useless and obsolete? And he utterly rejects that. He says, by no means. Absolutely not. No way. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In what way does the truth that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law uphold the law? Well, one sense is that Christ has fulfilled the law for us and gifted the righteousness of his perfectly keeping the law to us. So Christ has fulfilled the law for us and we've we received his fulfillment. But I think what he's talking about is what he'll talk about later in chapter 6, 7, and 8. In, in chapter 8, Paul says, that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit leads us to keep the moral requirements of the law. And then later in chapter 13, he says Christians are to obey the the commandment in the law to love your neighbor as yourself. So so rather than overthrowing the law, the truth is that that we are made right with God by faith presents the only way that we begin to fulfill the law. That we are justified, made right with God by faith alone in Christ is the foundational truth of our salvation. There is much more to our salvation than that, as we'll see in upcoming chapters. I close with a couple stanzas from How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Father, we are stunned and grateful that you would send Christ to be our ransom. To set him forth as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the only one who ever perfectly obeyed you, who indeed is and was your son, truly God, but also perfect human being. He didn't deserve it. He took what we deserved on himself and, and exchanged his righteousness for our sin. And now you count us righteous in him. How great is that? Thank you. In Christ I pray. Amen.